I suppose, Father, some of us just heard those words and thought, that's not Christmas. But Father, your, your accounting of the provision of Christ our Savior just permeates this book. It is saturated with anticipation of a Messiah who would redeem sinners. And then an account of the Messiah and His redemption work. And then reflections on the Messiah and His redemption work. And Father, we thank You for this great story of Christ, our Savior. And we thank You, Father, that it is a fulfillment of an astounding promise that was made. Might our hearts be illuminated this morning, energized, satisfied by the account of the one who would come to be our Savior, the Savior for all of mankind. We pray these things thanking you in Christ's name. Amen. In 1974, George Roy Hill was given the Oscar for Best Director for the movie The Sting, a film that starred Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Later that year, Hill received this letter from a 17-year-old aspiring actor. Dear Mr. Hill, seeing that I am a very close, dear, good, and long-lasting friends with your nephews Kit and Timothy and your niece Kate, and that I have seen your fantastically entertaining and award-winning film, The Sting, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford, and enjoyed it very much, it is altogether fitting and proper that you should discover me. Now, right away, I know what you're thinking. Who is this kid? And I can understand your apprehensions. I am a nobody. No one outside of Skyline High School has ever heard of me, but I figure if I can change my name to Clark Gable or Humphrey Bogart, some people will recognize me. My looks are not stunning. I'm not built like a Greek god. I cannot even grow a mustache. But I figure if people will pay to see certain films, they'll pay to see me. Now, let's work out the details of my discovery, shall we? We can do it the way Lana Turner was discovered. Me sitting on a soda shop stool and you walk in and notice me and bango, I'm a star. Or perhaps we could meet on a bus somewhere and casually strike up a conversation and be good, become good friends and I could come to you later asking for a job. During the last few weeks, you've actually been working on a script for me and bango, I'm a star. Or maybe we can do it this way. I stumble into your office one day and I beg for a job to get rid of me. You give me a stand-in part on your next film. And while shooting the film, the star breaks his leg in the dressing room. And because you're already behind on schedule, you arbitrarily place me in his part. And bango! I'm a star. All of these plans are fine with me. Or we could do it any way you would like. It makes no difference to me. But let's just get one thing straight, Mr. Hill. I just want to be a hometown American boy who has hit the big time, owns a Porsche, and calls Robert Redford Bob. Respectfully submitted, your pal forever, Thomas J. Hanks. Bango. That's confidence, don't you think? Or... Maybe a little overconfidence. Nothing like what Tom Hanks desired is quite so certain in life, at least not in mine. 
And we don't have to live life long to know that life is filled with unfulfilled dreams, unfulfilled promises, and way too many disappointments. This Christmas season may prove to be disappointing as well. Reminders of grief, reminders of sorrow, reminders of loss, as well as expectations that aren't met. And if you're a child, gifts that don't show up under the tree, which just should be there. But Christmas is also a reminder of God's provision for his people. You know the story of the birth of Christ well. You've read it dozens, hundreds of times. And likely heard dozens, hundreds perhaps, of sermons on the topic of Christ's advent. And this year I want to remind you of some of the themes of the Christmas story from the book of Titus. You might not consider Titus to be a particularly Christmas-saturated book, and I would generally acknowledge that. But the book is saturated with the appearance of Christ and His advent, and they are filled with hope for the believer that is rooted in Christ's appearance. And in that sense, they are Christmas stories. And so this Christmas season, over the next three Sundays, I want to remind us of the promise of Christ's coming the appearance of Christ, and then the fulfillment of Christ's coming. This morning, as we look through these opening verses of the book of Titus, what we're going to discover is this simple truth. You know this. Every believer's salvation is secured by God. What we have in salvation is a gift of God. It is a gift of His grace. It is His kindness to us. It is unmerited favor. We know that. And we are secure in that, not because of what we do, even after our salvation. We are secure, holy in our salvation, only because of God and what He has done. Our salvation is not just secure because we know that Christ came, not just secure because Christ died and rose again. Our salvation hope has been certain from the time that the promise of Christ's coming was made. We are resolute. In that security. And this morning in this brief passage. I want you to find with me three reasons. Why the hope of our salvation is secure. Three reasons why the hope of our salvation is secure. It is rooted in the story of Christmas. As we come to this passage. Let me just set the table for you with some context. About what's going on in the book of Titus. Titus was a disciple of Paul. Paul is writing this letter. We get that from the first verse. It's going to an individual, Titus. We get that from the fourth verse. Paul left Titus on the Isle of Crete. And Titus was to go throughout the Isle of Crete and establish churches and particularly establish elders and leaders within those churches. And this letter is about how to do that. So what are the instructions for Titus, as he goes to establish leaders in all of these churches. And what we're going to find in this letter is that, that the gospel is central to that work. That as Titus is going around establishing churches, it's based on the gospel. And then as he's establishing leaders, that also is based on the gospel. But the gospel is rooted in the advent of Christ himself. And so it's, it's connected to the coming of Christ. And Paul's going to make that really clear throughout this letter. We'll see that particularly next week. 
As in most of his letters, Paul begins by affirming his credentials for writing. We see that in verse 1. He is a bondservant of God. That is, he is a slave to God, which means as he is writing, he's simply following God's directive. These aren't Paul's ideas. These are not Paul's words, though they're his vocabulary and they're coming out of his life. They're God's word. They're God's direction through the Apostle Paul. He's enslaved to him. Not only is he enslaved to him, but notice as well, verse 1, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He has been sent by Christ in a particular role to serve as the foundation of the beginning New Testament church. And he is working as an apostle and as a slave. He tells us in verse 1, middle of the verse, for the faith of those who have been chosen by God. So he is working for the people to see them grow in Christ and develop in Christ. His ministry is for them, and he says at the end of the verse, for their godliness. That's why he's there. We also understand from verse 2, the beginning of this verse, that his apostolic work was in or for the hope of eternal life. That is, his ministry was because of the hope and the confidence that they had in Jesus Christ, and it was for the hope of those whom he was ministering to. So it's all saturated. Everything he's writing about is based on this idea of hope and confidence that we can trust that what God has given to us in salvation will come to fruition. What does he mean by that word hope? The word hope was used frequently by the Apostle Paul. It appears three times in this letter, in chapter 1 here, in chapter 2, verse 13, in chapter 3, verse 7. It appears 36 times in his other letters. So Paul is a hope-saturated Christian. And he uses that word hope to refer to many of the different realities in which the believer might be confident, secure. Uh, He uses hope to refer to the glory of Christ in Romans 5. Uh, or, excuse me, Colossians 1. He refers it to refer to the glory of God in Romans 5. The transformation of the earth at the end of the age, Romans 8. The expectation of what comes with Christ's righteousness. He uses it to refer to God's call of salvation and heaven and the believer's presentation to Christ and the security of the believer's salvation and eternal life and the appearance of Christ. And all of this is through the working of the Holy Spirit and it is secured and kept by Christ. But for all of these different aspects of hope and the way Paul uses it, he also helps us to see that there is a singular expression of hope. The believer's hope is singular. There is, he says in Ephesians 4, one hope. The hope is one, says one commentator, for it has one object, and that is glory, and one foundation, and that is Christ. So the believer's hope When you see this word, the hope of eternal life, it is the confidence of what we have in glory, in the presence of God, with Christ, and through Christ, and through His ministry. So when Paul uses the word hope, he is referring to the confidence that we have in the ultimate imputation and realization of Christ's righteousness. He, the believer, is secure that he will receive all of the blessings that are associated with heaven. Everything that God's promised will come about. It's not a, well, I hope there's a check for a million dollars in the mailbox tomorrow. No, it's not that kind of hope. It is a hope that is utterly, wholly secure. In other words, whatever the stated object is, hope is always looking forward 
for the sure culmination of our salvation. And the emphasis in this particular passage is on the object of our confident hope, and that is eternal life, in the hope of eternal life. What we have from God through Jesus Christ is life. Without Jesus Christ, all there is is death and everything that goes along with death. There's ungodliness and worldly desires and lawlessness. And in Christ, we have life. And this life is explained by not just the brevity of life, but it's the adjective is eternal life. It is infinite in duration. But even more than that, it is infinite in glory. It is infinite in, in delight. So not just the quantity is eternal, but the quality is eternal. And that just goes against everything we know. Everything we know on this earth is temporal. I was thinking about that this week. I mean, what, are, what are the kinds of things that aren't going to last? What kinds of things do you partake of that you can look at and say, well, there's a last time coming. There's a last time you will hug or kiss your mate. There's a last time you will check on your children in their beds. There's a last time you will go to your job. There's a last time you will participate in worship and take communion. There's a last time you will drive a car or go to the mall. Not all things are bad when they're last things. There's a last time you will cook or eat a meal. There's a last time you'll go to a favorite vacation spot. But since our life in Christ is eternal, everything that is of infinite value will never end. There are no last times in heaven. And brothers and sisters, this eternal life, this hope that we have has already begun when we think about eternal life, we're, we're, we're prone to thinking, well, that's something that happens when we get to heaven. No, if you're in Jesus Christ and he has forgiven you of your sin, your eternal life has already begun. The body will die, but you will not die. And you will be transported in an instant into his presence to continue on the eternal life that has already begun for you. Now, the significant question for this is, how do we know this is true? What's the certainty? You know, somebody can write a letter and bango, I'm a star. <laughs> There's no certainty to that. Where's the certainty to this? That's what Paul answers for us in verses 2 and 3, where we find three reasons for the security of our salvation. The first is this, our hope is secure because God made a promise. How do we know that our hope is not misplaced? How do we know our salvation will be completed? We are secure in our salvation because God promised it. And notice what he says in the middle of verse 2, which God who cannot lie. We know it's secure because God cannot lie. You know, there's a certain irony as Paul writes this letter to Titus in Crete. Because if you remember the rest of the letter, you'll remember verse 12 about the Cretes, about the Cretans. Paul says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, has said, 
Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lightens. That's the definition of what it means to be a Cretan. What's life like in Crete? Oh, they're a bunch of liars. You can't trust anything any of them says. They lie about everything all the time. They cannot tell the truth. If their lips are moving, they're lying. And in that context, and in opposition to that, Paul says, God cannot lie. You know, maybe that our culture isn't so terribly different from the Cretans. A number of years ago, in an article entitled The Truth About Lying, it said this. The old view about lying. Lying, like other issues of morality, was only seen in black and white. Children were taught that all lying was bad and deserving of strict punishment and frequently reminded that lying will make your nose grow as long as Pinocchio's. The new view. Today. Some lying is considered normal. In fact, a child's first few few lies are seen as an important step in the development of self. Well, that is true in a way, isn't it? If you want to lie so you can develop self and be self-oriented and live for the exaltation of self, that's true. But if you want to live in conformity to Christ, no. God, on the other hand, Not only does not lie, he cannot lie. There is nothing in him that is disposed to telling a lie or deceiving. He is morally incapable of deceitfulness. There is nothing in him that is attracted to lies, says one commentator. He is a non-lying God. And because he cannot lie, God is the source and measure of all truth. Everything truthful comes from him. Everything is measured for truthfulness by him. We know truth because we know God. Numbers 23, this is, this is just a repeated theme throughout the scriptures, I won't read them all, but a sampling. Deuteronomy, excuse me, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of a man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it or has he not spoken and will he not make it good? If he says it, he'll do it. He can't lie. For Samuel 15, 29, also the glory of Israel that is God, will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Second Timothy 2.13, if we are faithful, he remains, if we, excuse me, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He cannot be opposed to what he inherently is. Now, what's the benefit of God's unwavering truthfulness? It means that you can trust him. When he has spoken, it is a certainty that what he has promised will come about. That's what makes our hope not a wish and not a dream, but a reality and a certainty. He has secured his promises to us and our salvation by his word, which is unalterable. So what are the facets of our hope that he talks about here in verse 2? Its extent is eternal and its security is assured by the certainty of God's truthfulness. Now, where did that hope start? Paul tells us, notice the next phrase, God made a promise. Where did he make that promise? In the hope of eternal life, which God, which God who cannot lie promised. Long ages 
ago. Our hope, our confidence, our security in our salvation is rooted in a promise that was made a long time ago. Once upon a time, if you will. Now, there's a debate about what long ages ago means. Some think that it refers to the promises that God made in the Old Testament to Abraham and the other fathers and the prophets of Israel. There's lots of examples that they go to for that. Certainly God made promises in the Old Testament and promises of salvation and promises of the coming of the Messiah. And it's certainly a possibility. But I think the term probably means something like the NIV has translated. As far as I know, this is the only translation that renders it this way. Before the beginning of time. The same term that we find here in Titus long ages ago appears only two other times in the New Testament. Romans 16 at the end, verse 25, and 2 Timothy chapter 1. So if you want to just turn back a couple of pages, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Speaking about God and His power, 2 Timothy 1, 9 says... God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. In other words, in the eternal past, it was promised to us. If you want to follow along, turn to John chapter 6 or just or keep your finger Back there in Titus, or just listen as I read John chapter 6, we find a very similar kind of statement made starting in verse 37. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. He's speaking about people. All that God the Father gives me for salvation will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I certainly will not. Cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That is the father who sends the son, Jesus Christ. This is the will of him who sent me. Verse 39. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father. That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Here's what's going on. The Father, verse 39, gives a gift to the Son. When is that gift given? Long ages ago, in eternity past, the Father gives a gift and makes a promise To the son. And says I'm going to give you. A redeemed people. Who will forever praise your name. So there's going to be a creation. And from that creation. Mankind will fall into sin. And I will manifest. The greatness of your glory. I will put your glory on display. By sending you. To earth to take on the mantle of manhood and go to the cross as the perfect God man so that you can die in the place of sinners who have rejected us. 
And then when they place their faith in you, we will redeem them by means of your death on the cross in their place. So that they will forever be in glory to sing your praises. The promise was an inner Trinitarian promise. Father to Son by means of the Spirit. And it meant that the one who received the promise also had to be the one who would act so that the promise could be fulfilled. The gift is given, Father to Son. And the Son has to be the agent on whom God's wrath is poured out so that people can be redeemed. He would be the one who would accomplish the redemption of those people. Notice this as well. You can't actually see it very well in the English text. It says, God who cannot die, Titus 1-2, promised this long ages ago. That word promised is what we call a reflexive verb. That is, it's turned on itself, if you will. We might translate it this way. He himself promised it. Or he promised it to himself. And so he's emphasizing, even by the grammar of that particular verse, that there was no one else to receive the promise except the members of the Godhead. And there was nothing else and no one else to compel him. He was acting by his grace alone to make the promise to himself and then to see it fulfilled. So this promise is made within the Trinity. And God, who must be faithful to Himself and cannot lie, must keep the promise that He has made. It's not just that He's made a promise to you or to me. It's not just that He made a promise to Abraham, but the Father has made a promise to the Son. And the Father, who cannot lie, cannot go back on His promise. Two realities for us to understand from this truth. One is this. You, if you are in Jesus Christ, and your salvation are the gift of love from the Father to the Son. That's astounding. The Father says, how can... How can I demonstrate in this perfect union of the Godhead my love for the Son? And for all of eternity, the answer has always been a redeemed people for whom He Himself will die so that they will sing His praises. You're the love gift. That doesn't mean that you're worthy. <laughs> doesn't mean that I'm worthy. We're not. It means there has been astounding grace poured out on us as an expression of this love gift. A second implication, second reality to understand is that our salvation is part of an eternal plan. Listen, friend, there was never a time when this wasn't the plan. It's not like God woke up one day and said, well, what shall I do? I mean, that's what I said, but how do you communicate infinite realities in finite words? But this was always the plan. 
Salvation plan was not God's response to the fall of mankind. God was not in heaven wringing his hands and saying, Oh dear, they've sinned. Now what do I do? It was always the plan. And you, as the love gift, were always the plan. There has never been a time when it wasn't the plan. There has always been the promised agreement between the Father and the Son. It happened long ages ago in eternal past. So our hope, according to what Paul says in verse 2, is eternal in its extent. And it is assured by the certainty of God's truthfulness. And it has originated in an inner Trinitarian promise. And it was revealed in Christ and the gospel. Which is the second reason why we can be confident of the hope that we have from God. Our hope is sure because God revealed it in the gospel. So how did God reveal it? And when did God reveal it? Verse 3. At the proper time, this was manifested, even His Word. When was it manifested? At the proper time. What was manifested? His Word. Now, the word Word is broad in its meaning and significance. It, it can mean and refer to the Bible and Scripture. It can refer to Jesus Christ himself. John chapter 1, we find that. You're well familiar with that. But in this letter and in the pastoral epistles, what Paul uses, when Paul uses the word word, he generally uses it to refer to the gospel message about Jesus Christ. So chapter 2, verse 5, speaking about women, he says they are to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored, so that the gospel of God will not be dishonored. The means by which they were saved and the purpose for which they are saved will not be dishonored. We find a similar meaning in uh, 2 Timothy chapter uh, chapter. 2 verse 9 for which I suffer hardship speaking about the gospel for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal but the word of God the gospel of God is not imprisoned so he suffers according to the gospel but that suffering of the gospel does not mean that the gospel is imprisoned or held captive and so as Paul uses this term his word has been manifested at the proper time. He is talking about the gospel. The gospel has been manifested at the right time. Now, when was the gospel manifested? Well, at the right time. Terry, can't you read? At the proper time. The word time there doesn't refer to chronological time, like it's 11.34 and it's just about time for lunch. not talking about that. He's talking about a season of time. And he means by that the circumstances were just right for the promise to be revealed. The promise of what? The promise of the Father to the Son that He would redeem people. And it's time for that to be exposed and be revealed. And when was that exposed and revealed? The initiation of that plan came with the advent of Jesus Christ. Paul talks about 
this in other places in his letters. Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Ephesians chapter 1. He made known to us the mystery of his will with a view to the, an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. Both those passages pointing to the advent of Jesus Christ as the culmination of the gospel message. Now it started. And when the baby is born, God is revealing, here comes the gospel. Here comes the fulfillment of my promise. Now think about it. Think about this. All these hosts in heaven. Redeemed sinners from the Old Testament. And all the perfect angels. The unfallen angels in heaven. And they understand the gospel in heaven. But even though they are in heaven, and even though some of them are directly around the throne of God, they do not know the timing of events, and they do not know how the gospel will be completed. We get that from 1 Peter chapter 1. They're looking into what's happening to see the full extent of the gospel. So they don't know. We know also that God sent angels. We read that this morning. We, that God sent angels to proclaim the arrival of the Christ, the Lord, the Messiah. Don't you think that when those angels showed up in Luke chapter 2, that part of them was saying, Now! The heavens are opened! And now is being revealed the promise of the ages. The promise. That has been promised from eternal past. And now we see it in the Christ child. It's here. Redemption has begun. Now let's connect our certainty and the hope of the salvation to the revelation of the gospel. And we can say it this simply. Our salvation is certain because God has said it and God has revealed it. Whatever God has said must come to fruition. Why? Because he can't lie. He can only tell you the truth. He is never mistaken. So friend, if he has revealed the gospel message to be rooted in Christ and if he has revealed that there is forgiveness of sin and liberation from sin and hope of glory with him, he hasn't lied. He's showed it to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And that reality, though it is still future for us, is just as certain and just as unalterable as yesterday's events were. You can no more change the future of your salvation when you are in Christ than you can change yesterday. It's safe, it's secure, because it has been revealed by God who cannot lie. Our hope that we have received from God is eternal. It is secured by God's truthfulness. It originates in God's promise and now it has been revealed to us.
There's one more facet of the certainty of his hope. And it is the commission of our hope. This is the end of verse 3. At the proper time, this was manifested, even his word, his gospel, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. The gospel message was revealed through Christ's advent. It was revealed through Christ's work on the cross. It was revealed in Christ's victory over death and sin in the tomb and his resurrection from the tomb and from death. And then it was also revealed through the communication, the proclamation of Paul and the apostles. How do we know this? Because somebody said it. Somebody wrote it down. And Paul here in verse 3 says, I was entrusted as an apostle, commissioned by God. Not just commissioned, as in, hey Paul, you want to go do this? No, notice what Paul says. It is a commandment. That has been given to him. It's it's a trust. It's something that's been entrusted to him. But it's also given not just as a trust. But it's a commandment. It's an imperative. He had a full obligation. To do this. Now Paul had this obligation. Particularly as an apostle. Right? So I'm a bond servant of God. An apostle of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1. That's repeated throughout many of his other letters as well. I can't do anything else. But the task of proclamation was not just given to Paul, was it? Every believer in Christ has been tasked with carrying the gospel to the nations. You start in Jerusalem, you go to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, Acts chapter 1. This is is my commandment to you, Jesus says to the disciples, Matthew 28, right? As you're going... Sharing the gospel, baptizing, teaching all that I've commanded you. This is what we do. We go with the gospel. And that's essential. Because no one's going to be saved with the gospel apart from a proclamation of it. Now, I like looking at trees and it's often. Haven't the trees been fantastic this year? The colors. I heard somebody overheard somebody talking about it regularly this morning. Regularly, Regina and I are going down the road. I'm at, I am when I drive, I'm on search and destroy mode. And yes, I'm that guy. And so I don't usually look around. But Regina, the last month has just been look at the trees, look at the trees, look at the trees. I can't help but look at the trees. And they've just been fabulous. And I look at those things, and what do I say? The glory of God. You just look at it and you say, Who has who has the mind to create those colors and the, the whole process of photosynthesis and whatever else happens when they change colors and I don't have a clue what that is and they just do it. And the yellows and the oranges and the shades and, and it just screams God's glory. And everything else in creation. And I love that as much as the next guy. But hear me, looking at trees won't save you. Looking at trees doesn't save you. Looking at another believer's life doesn't save you. Now, we're all for living out the reality of our salvation, right? Putting our works on display so others will see. But we don't just put our works on display so that others will see. We put our works on display so that others will see and ask questions. 
and then sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, Peter says, 1 Peter 3.15, always having, being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So people see what you're doing and they say, hey, why do you do that? Ah, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Somebody's got to proclaim the gospel. Without the proclamation of it, there is no salvation. And Paul says, the entrustment of that gospel proclamation came to him as a commandment of God, our Savior. So the God who saves us is the one who has commanded that. Now, how does the preaching of the gospel How does the work of evangelism connect to the certainty of our salvation? It connects in this way. Remember what verse 2 said? In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised. God cannot lie. And God told Paul, go with this gospel message. And he tells you and me, Go with this gospel message. And if the message is wrong, that makes God a liar. But God isn't a liar. So the message is true. So our salvation and our hope is secure. That's the connection. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, rejoice at this eternal and infinite certainty of your hope. You are secure for one reason. Because long ages ago, God made a promise, Father to Son, to secure your salvation. And that should give you deep rest. Not just as you come into the Christmas season, but every day. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, this hope that we've been talking about this morning, you don't have, you can't have. You can have wishes and dreams, but you can't have confident, secure hope unless you believe the gospel. And to believe the gospel is simply to believe that the second person of the Trinity the second person of the eternal Godhead, became a man. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, not because of his sin, but because of your sin. He died in your place to take God's wrath against your sin so that when you believe in him, he can wipe away the debt of your sin and liberate you from your sin and give you the certainty, the hope of glory. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, He will forgive your sin and He will liberate you from your sin. It just takes belief. Which is to say, Jesus, I believe that you died for me paying a penalty I can't ever pay and I commend my life to you. I believe that you died for me in the past and that you are worth living for in the future. I want you and everything associated with you. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, 
Would you believe in Jesus Christ today? That's the only way you will ever get this hope. As we come to Christmas 2022 and New Year 2023, there are many things we don't know. We don't know what the economy will be in the future. We don't know our personal health or what the health of our loved ones will be in the future. We don't know what new laws advocating or destroying immorality will be from our lawmakers. We don't know what will happen in the next election. We don't know what will happen with our jobs. We don't know about our children's salvation. We don't know if we're going to pass the next class or the next test. But we do know this. We know that the Father made a promise to the Son. And that makes our salvation and our hope secure. We look to the past as the ground of our salvation. We look to the cross and further than, back than that into the eternal past to the promise made by the God who cannot lie. And we walk away saying, because of the promise, when I am in Christ, I am safe. My hope is sure. Father, we thank you for the advent of Jesus Christ who came not just as a babe, though he certainly did that, but he came as the fulfillment of the promise that you had made to him in the eternal past about a redeemed people. And that's the basis of our security. And that's the basis for our hope. That's the basis for our confidence. That you promised. Thank you. Thank you that we can. Spend these days at this season. Thinking. About the blessedness of our Savior. Who came as the fulfillment of that promise. Might that be the thing that. Gives us joy. This season. Might he be. The culmination of our joy. And the epitome of our delight. Because of the certainty of our hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.